of April 30th, 2021, over 100,000 Haredi Jewish worshippers gathered at the slopes of Mount Meron in Israel to celebrate the Jewish holiday of Lagba Omer. Around 1 a.m., many people began leaving the ceremony through the exit, a narrow tunnel with a slippery metal floor at a downward slope. As the large group of people approached the stairway in the tunnel, several members of the group lost their footing and fell. This led to a massive crowd crush as thousands of people scrambled to escape the narrow tunnel. By the time the crowd crush ended, 45 people were dead and 150 more were seriously injured. The Mount Maron crowd crush surpassed the 2010 Mount Carmel fire as the deadliest civilian disaster in Israeli history. The casualties of the disaster included six American citizens, two Canadian citizens, one Argentinian citizen, and one British citizen. Ten days after the tragedy, Amar Halela, the safety inspector who greenlit the event, was arrested and charged with negligent homicide. Halela had been accused of ignoring repeated complaints about the venue's access points, which were compared to bottlenecks. Conditions like these heavily increase the risk of a crowd crush. To a lot of people, the lethality of crowd crushes may be confusing. At least prior to COVID-19, there were certainly more dangerous things to be around than, well, other people. But when too many people are crowded in a small space, as was the case at Mount Maron, the situation can quickly become deadly. If a stampede takes place during a crowd crush, those involved can be killed by blunt force trauma from others running on top of them. However, the most common cause of death during a crowd crush is asphyxiation. As more people fill up an enclosed space, their abdomens are forcibly compressed, which prevents proper breathing and starves the brain of oxygen. This is what makes crowd crushes so deadly. There have been many notable crowd crushes throughout history. Most of you have likely heard the phrase, you can't shout fire in a crowded building, as an example of how free speech can be limited. This phrase originated in 1913, when a crowd crush killed 73 people after someone shouted fire during a Christmas party at Calumet, Michigan. In 1941, during the Japanese bombing of Chongqing, China, over 1,000 Chinese civilians died as they crammed into air raid shelters. In 1953, during the funeral for Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin in Moscow, Russia, 109 people were killed in a crowd crush as they attempted to approach Stalin's coffin. In 1979, 11 people were suffocated to death at Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati, Ohio as they attempted to enter a Who concert through a narrow hallway. In 2008, 224 Hindu pilgrims were killed in a crowd crush in Jodhpur, India while celebrating the festival of Navratri. In 2020, during the funeral for Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, 56 people were killed in a crowd crush as Soleimani was buried. But none of these incidents even come close to the deadliest crowd crush in modern history. In 2015, as many as 2,411 Muslim pilgrims were killed in a crowd crush at Jamarat Bridge in Mecca, Saudi Arabia while making the Hajj pilgrimage. 
The exact cause of this tragedy remains unknown, but the Saudi government has since beheaded 28 people who were found to be liable in the disaster. The disaster also aggravated the already tense relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran as 464 of the victims in the disaster were Iranian citizens. Another crowd crush, albeit a less deadly one, took place 26 years earlier at a crowded sporting event in the United Kingdom. On that fateful day, a series of costly mistakes would lead to the death of nearly 100 people. I'm going to tell you all about it right now on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 41st episode of this podcast, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Special thank you to Patreon subscriber Tom. If you want to receive a shout out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash Historia Obscura and becoming a patron. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. Anyone who knows about the aftermath of the Euro 2020 final knows that British people take soccer way too seriously, but in their defense, they've been following soccer for a long time. And I mean a long time. The Football Association, which governs all soccer leagues and tournaments in England, was established back in 1863. The FA is also directly controlled by the British royal family, and the current president of the association is Prince William, an avid soccer fan. Since 1871, the FA has organized the oldest continuous annual soccer tournament in the world, the FA Cup. This tournament, most recently won by Leicester City in 2021, pits every professional soccer team in England against each other. So yeah, it's kind of a big deal. And in the 1989 FA Cup, this was no different. By the semifinals, four teams remained. Everton, Norwich City, Nottingham Forest, and Liverpool. On April 15, 1989, these teams were both set to face off at 3 p.m. Everton and Norwich City would play at Villa Park in Birmingham, while Nottingham Forest and Liverpool would play at the Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield. Although both matches were set to take place at the same time, the Nottingham Forest-Liverpool match was the clear fan favorite, with over 53,000 tickets purchased despite the fact that Hillsborough Stadium has a maximum capacity of less than 40,000. At around 2.20pm, large groups of fans began arriving at Hillsborough Stadium. At around 2.45 p.m., officials began letting the spectators into the stadium. 
However, with only 15 minutes to let all 53,000 fans into the stadium before the match began, a very poor decision was made to let in more people quickly. Two extra gates were opened, which allowed a dangerous amount of extra fans to cram into the stadium. In an instant, thousands of fans began flowing through the extra gates towards a dangerously narrow tunnel underneath the west stand. Inside the tunnel, people were pressed against the walls by the weight of the crowd before entering open-air pens on the ground next to the field. The situation inside the tunnel was quickly alleviated by police who prevented new spectators from entering until the tunnel was unblocked. However, due to the sheer size of the crowd, pressure began to build inside the spectator pens. Around this time, the match began. Due to the commotion of the match, authorities did not notice the situation unfolding in the pens, although Liverpool goalkeeper Bruce Grobelar later reported hearing spectators behind him pleading for help. Then, at 3.04pm, a shot from Liverpool striker Peter Beardsley hit the crossbar and all hell broke loose. Suddenly, the pressure of the crowd caused a metal barrier between Pen 3 and Pen 4 to collapse. This set off a chain of barrier collapses which ultimately led to a massive crowd crush in the pens. Thousands of spectators became trapped between each other or against the perimeter fencing. Many were asphyxiated while standing due to chest compression and they fell unconscious within seconds. As other fans climbed over the fence in an attempt to escape the crowd crush, referee Ray Lewis stopped the match six minutes in. As police and surviving spectators hopelessly attempted to tear holes in the fence to let the trapped spectators out, those trapped inside began dying. One's brain can only be starved of oxygen for a few minutes before brain damage and death occurs. By the time the crowd crush ended, less than 10 minutes after it began, 94 people were dead and another 768 were seriously injured. After what was initially believed to just be a 30-minute delay, the Nottingham Forest-Liverpool match was officially abandoned. A few hours afterward, Everton defeated Norwich City 1-0. Four days later, on April 19, 1989, 14-year-old Lee Nichol, who suffered critical injuries at Hillsborough, was taken off life support, bringing the death toll up to 95. The Nottingham Forest-Liverpool match was replayed on May 7, 1989, and Liverpool 1-3-1. Liverpool went on to defeat Everton 3-2 in the final on May 20, 1989. As almost all of the Hillsborough disasters victims were Liverpool fans, this victory was widely seen as a vindication for those who died. But the tragedy of the disaster had not even ended yet. Two survivors, 18-year-old Tony Bland and 22-year-old Andrew Devine, suffered extensive brain damage due to asphyxiation and remained in persistent vegetative states. 
Tony Bland in particular became a major subject of the Right to Die movement, which promotes the idea that terminally ill individuals should be allowed to die prematurely to avoid undue suffering. In 2018, the British Medical Association officially established guidelines for allowing patients in such cases to, quote, die with dignity. In the United States, a precedent had already been set by the 1985 death of New Jersey resident Karen Ann Quinlan, which would later be affirmed by the 2005 death of Florida resident Terry Schiavo. But back in 1989, such guidelines did not exist in the United Kingdom. So when Bland's parents requested that their son's feeding tube be withdrawn, the hospital refused. In turn, Bland's family filed a court order to allow him to die with dignity. Eventually, Her Majesty's Court of Appeal ruled that Bland's family was allowed to remove his feeding tube. On March 3, 1993, nearly four years after the Hillsborough disaster, Tony Bland died at the age of 22 following the removal of his feeding tube. He was the first British patient ever permitted to die with dignity, and he became the 96th victim of the disaster. As for Andrew Devine, he continued to be treated with a feeding tube. One year after Tony Bland's death, Devine miraculously emerged from his vegetative state. Today, he is completely aware of his surroundings and is able to communicate via a touch-sensitive pad, although he remains confined to a wheelchair. Of the 96 victims of the Hillsborough disaster, 89 were male and 7 were female. The youngest victim was 10-year-old John Paul Galuli, whose cousin, Stephen Gerrard, would go on to lead Liverpool to two FA Cup wins and one UEFA Champions League win. Gerard, widely considered one of the greatest soccer players of his generation, has cited his cousin's death in the Hillsborough disaster as a motivation to lead Liverpool to victory one day. The oldest victim, 67-year-old Gerard Barron, was the brother of deceased Liverpool player Kevin Barron. The traumatic nature of the disaster took a major toll on survivors and first responders of the event. Many survivors have since experienced collapsed marriages, alcoholism, and drug abuse. Three survivors have even committed suicide due to post-traumatic stress disorder, as did Stephen Whittle, who was not present at the match. Prior to the match, Whittle had sold his ticket to a friend due to a work commitment. His friend reportedly died during the disaster, and on February 26, 2011, as a result of survivor's guilt, Whittle committed suicide by jumping in front of a train. He is considered by many to be the 97th victim of the Hillsborough disaster. In his will, Whittle left £61,000 to the families of Hillsborough victims in the hopes of bringing the officials responsible for the disaster to justice. been several investigations since 1989 to determine responsibility for the disaster. Initial reports stated that the disaster was simply due to the hooliganism and excessive alcohol use of the spectators. 
In 1991, the first coroner's inquest ruled that the deaths in the disaster were accidental. However, it later emerged that local police had fabricated stories of spectator misconduct to cover up their own negligence in letting in too many spectators. In 2012, the investigation was reopened. A second coroner's inquest in 2016 determined that the victims of the disaster had been unlawfully killed due to gross negligence. On June 28, 2017, five members of the South Yorkshire Police and one stadium safety officer were charged with crimes related to the disaster. On August 21, 2018, Chief Inspector Sir Norman Bettison accused of making false statements about the police force's role in the disaster had all four public misconduct charges against him dropped due to a lack of evidence. On November 28, 2019, Chief Superintendent David Duckenfield, who oversaw the failure of police to provide adequate crowd control to the match, was found not guilty of 95 counts of negligent manslaughter. On May 26, 2021, Chief Superintendent Donald Denton, Detective Chief Inspector Alan Foster, and Solicitor Peter Metcalf, all accused of coercing 68 police officers into lying about the Hillsborough disaster, were found not guilty of perverting the course of justice. The only conviction in the disaster was that of Graham Mackerel, the Hillsborough Stadium safety officer responsible for the insufficient number of turnstiles at the stadium. On April 3, 2019, Mackerel was found guilty of failing to discharge his duty as safety officer, but he received only a fine of £6,500. To date, Nobody responsible for the Hillsborough disaster has served a day in prison. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. I think my British listeners likely know about this event before listening to this episode, but for the rest of the world, I'm sure you learned something new. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash historiaobscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash historia obscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.